This morning, my brothers and sisters, I'm going to focus on our first reading from the book of Maccabees. And uh, at this time of the year, as we realize, and as I, I think I mentioned briefly yesterday in my Sunday homily, we hear a lot of readings that have to do with the end of the world. So as we come to the end of the, the um, liturgical year, we hear readings about the end of the world. Okay, And so uh, to impress you, I'm going to use a big fancy word. Okay, So it's called the end of the world in, in Christian theology is called the eschaton. Okay, and the, the study of the, of the things that have to do with the, la- the end of the world uh, is called eschatology. Okay, so the eschaton uh, is the very end, and eschatology is the study of the things that have to do with the end. So we are in this kind of period of uh, eschatological or eschatological thought or reflection in the year. That's what we're about right now. And actually, when we go into Advent, we're going to see a little bit of that as well, too, in Advent, but, but at the end of the year for sure. Now, the book of the Maccabees is an Old Testament book that really has a lot to do with eschatology because the events in the Maccabees become what's, what, again, in, in theology is called a type, okay, meaning there is some kind of an event, an actual historical event that takes place that the Bible uses as like a symbol for other future events that haven't yet happened. Okay, So these different events that take place in the Maccabees become a type for eschatological events. They become a type for events and things that will take place right at the very end of the world before Jesus comes again. Now, I don't mean to scare you about the talk of the end of the world. I, I personally believe it's my personal opinion, and I think the Holy Father, Pope Francis, is of the same opinion as well from what I, I read from him. Uh, is that the end of the world is very far off, and we've got a lot of work to do. And I gave a homily on this. You know, we've we've got a huge amount of work to do. Lots of evangelization to take place. Jesus says the end will not come until the, this gospel is preached in all the worlds. Some people might be of the opinion, well, it's been preached enough. You know, in the world, it's in the world. But others are of the opinion, myself included, that we've got lots and lots of work to do. So it could be thousands of years before Jesus comes again. Nonetheless, it's important to reflect, even though it might be far off, it's important to reflect about uh, on the things, the last things, and the end of the world, because what happens then is a kind of concentration of the story that holds true for all of salvation history. It's kind of like um, you, you have the entire drama of salvation history that becomes incredibly extremely focused and consecrate, uh, concentrated and very visible at the end. Okay, So this sort of cosmic battle between good and evil, between uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that's really holds true for all of salvation history becomes really, really intense at the very end. So when we study the things about the end, it helps us learn about all of salvation history. It helps us situate ourselves in salvation history. So these events in the Maccabees become a type for the things about the end that we hear of in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation and other prophets. So there's this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? How it works historically is you got Alexander the Great. Have we heard of Alexander the Great? Very, very famous guy because he's this guy that comes out of the West. He's a Greek and he's able to uh, conquer uh, the known world all the way up into India. I mean, it, like within 12 years or something, just amazing. He's a whirlwind conqueror, really, really impressive. After he dies, he dies as a young man. His four chief generals split up his entire territory into four different uh, areas. So the one area that was in Syria was uh, was ruled by this whole line of kings referred to as Antiochus. 
And then cities are named after him, Antioch and St. Paul later on would have his headquarters in Antioch, so forth and so on. But in any event, Antiochus IV becomes a type of what we call the Antichrist. The Antichrist is this horrible tyrant that is going to come around, come about at the just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he basically is the embodiment of everything that's anti-Christian. Okay, his 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 behavior, his thoughts, uh, how he wants to govern the world and create a kind of anti-Christian utopia. Okay, so this is the Antichrist, and Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth is a type of the Antichrist um, that we read about in Saint Paul and Thessalonians, in the Book of Revelation, and Daniel, and so forth and so on. There's a few things that he does. It's very interesting. So. He, uh, he wants to bring, he's known for being a breaker of the law, and that is, that is what the, St. Paul refers to the Antichrist as the lawless one. So that's like what he's known for, is he's the, he wants to break <laughs> the Ten Commandments. Alright? Um, and, uh, the, the other thing that he's really known for is he wants to bring an end to the sacrifices in the, in the Temple of Jerusalem. Okay, and so in our text here it says they set up the abomination of desolation. What that is, historically, is he took the altar in Jerusalem, the altar that was dedicated to the one true God, and he set up an altar to Zeus, and he sacrificed pigs on it. Okay, really, really bad, you know, according to the Old Testament law, horrible, horrible thing. So he, he desecrates the whole temple. And uh, when you see this whole the spirit of Antichrist that Antiochus Epiphanes moved in, it has there's precursors all throughout history. So there's very there's minor and small Antichrists all throughout history. Uh, Julius the Apostate, a Roman emperor, is is an Antichrist. In a lot of ways, um, Hitler himself was an Antichrist because he was very much opposed to, you know, the people that he hated the most, really, and that he put in his concentration camps were Jews. But you know who else? Catholic priests. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So it's an interesting combination. Those were his two big enemies. And it says when they put the Catholic priests in the concentration camps, they made sure absolutely the number one priority for the, the concentration camp guards was to make sure that the priests could never get their hands on wine. Isn't that interesting? Because they wanted to, because they could easily get their hands on bread. They're not going to try to stop them from getting their hands on bread. But they knew if they had bread and they had wine, they could offer mass. And that was the last thing that they wanted, was to mass to be offered. You see, that's the spirit of Antichrist. It wants to bring an end to the sacrifice. Okay, the Antichrist is known for wanting to stop the sacrifice of God, which for us as Christians is the mass. Um, but, I'm not going to focus too much on the Antichrist. I'm going to focus on another group of interesting people here that we see in Maccabees, which again are foreshadowing of things to come, and we see them in our in our days now. They are the Jews themselves, and they say, you know what? We're kind of tired of obeying the law too. We want to be just like the people who you know these really pious Jews think are our enemies. We want to be just like them. We want to build a gymnasium, okay? Uh, we want to follow the Gentile customs, so forth and so on. And so they're accommodationists. Okay? And don't we see that here as, as in the Catholic Church? You've got large numbers of Catholics who want to be accommodationists. You see this in the political sphere. Okay? So I'm Catholic in everything, but when it comes to politics, I have to vote, you know, pro-choice. 
Okay, I'm Catholic in my private sphere, but when it comes to politics, I've got to make all of these non-Catholic decisions. Okay, that's the accommodation of spirit that ultimately will be the right hand of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to really be in league with probably Jewish people who are very wealthy and very intelligent and probably a lot of Catholics who are very wealthy and very intelligent. That's probably how it's going to work. Okay, so it's... You know, uh, there's a saying out there that says, and this has to do with the Catholic clergy, I find it interesting, all evil comes from the Catholic clergy. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's like good and bad, right? All good comes, but this thing that's so good can be corrupted and can become a source of bad. And so you see all these revolutions and terrible uh, things that have happened in history that have resulted in lots of bloodshed. You often find Catholic priests behind this. It's very interesting. You know, if you go down to a lot of the communist revolutions in South America that were result, that resulted in tons and tons of bloodshed in the 1960s and 1970s, it's Catholic priests behind it. It was Jesuit priests behind this, you know? I mean, the whole, uh, course of modern history was changed with, by, by uh, the decision of, uh, decisions of, of Martin Luther. Okay? It's a Catholic priest. <laughs> so, it's all, you really, you find this quite frequently in history. I want to just focus on, on my homily with this here. Focus on this one very interesting thing about these accommodationists, okay? Um, these Jewish people who want to not be Jewish anymore. They, they say that they want to cover over the marks of their circumcision. Isn't that really interesting? Okay, so the circumcision is the sign of the covenant of God. Now they want to cover it over. Now, think about that. How in the world, what is that, right? Okay, so if you look into this, and St. Paul references this practice as well, too, very briefly, I think, in the book of Romans. It's actually possible, I guess, I don't know how it's possible, but for some kind of quasi-surgical process to be applied, okay, in such a way that the circumcision was sort of like undone. Like Again, I don't know, it stretches the imagination as to how this actually happens, but you can imagine... The craziness of it, right? Totally painful. A huge burden. You're going out of your way. You know? Be, and the only way that you would want to like suffer that kind of, um, kind of gross self-mutilation is if you had, if you felt the mark of circumcision initially as an even greater burden and an even greater source of suffering. Isn't that terrible? When the gifts of God become a burden to you and a source of grief and suffering. You know your heart is not in the right place. Okay? And you're willing to undergo even more suffering to undo this suffering that you feel because of the gifts of God. I'm gonna, to, to protect people's identities, I have a life experience. So I'll just kinda like cover over uh, situations, circumstances, names and whatnot. But I met a, a Jewish man once and uh, the discussion arose about religion. And he went out of his way. You know, he, the Jewish people sometimes they feel their Judaism as an amazing burden, as an incredible burden that they carry around, that they have to wrestle with for their whole life. And they either become reconciled to it and become proud of their Jewish heritage, or they fight it. And they labor under it as a burden for their whole life. So I, I just, it was an amazing experience, but it was so clear that he had a psychological complex about his Judaism. He went out of his way to order 
a humongous bacon uh, and cheese hamburger and to eat it in front of me like this with his looking at me and his eyes and the grease was coming down his face. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this guy's got a psychological complex. His, his The burden of his Judaism was so intense that he had to erase it by doing this act in front of me. And uh, I really see that with Catholicism as well. People carry around their Catholicism as like a burden sometimes, and they struggle with it. How many Catholics have you met in your life that say, yeah, I'm a recovering Catholic, right? I, I have met dozens of Catholics in various professional contexts and circumstances that, yeah, I'm a recovering Catholic, you know. And it's the people, they struggle with their Catholicism. They, re, they resist it. They reject it. But it, it, it's always there. It's always there. And uh, that is this uh, sort of accommodationist spirit. But w- the beautiful thing, I think the lesson that I want to leave us with, is that that burden is a gift. It's a gift. Some point, at some point in their lives, my prayer is that the people who find their Catholicism, because they didn't choose it, it was something given to them, you know, and they feel it as a burden, but at some point in their lives they realize, oh my gosh, I have this humongous fortress of salvation that I can retreat back into. And this burden now becomes this humongous protection for me. It becomes the support of my life. It becomes the foundation for everything that I have. It becomes a source of immense gratitude because it's not something that I chose. It's something that was given to me by God. And oftentimes it's later on in their life that they find this out and they have this experience where they're able to be reconciled to the Catholicism, you know, they dragged it around <laughs> their whole life as it were like on a chain behind them. But now it becomes this blessing and this life-giving source as they, they experience this great conversion. So my prayer is that all the accommodationist Catholics that are out there that are in politics, family members that we have, all these different Catholics that we know that don't appreciate their heritage, that see it as a great burden, that want to cover over the marks of their circumcision, uh, my prayer is that they would really experience a great uh, awakening and, the, and to see it as, as such a blessing, as such a blessing that they would cease to fight against God and that they would submit to Him with great gratitude that he's not there as an enemy. He's there to love them. How, how awesome. That's my prayer. And I really believe that that is a possibility um, because I see it happen. I see it happen as a minister. And, and we do, all of us, we see it happen. So what, a, what an awesome reality. That's our prayer. And so for us as well, too, are there things that we're fighting? Are we resisting? Are there certain elements of our lives where we're trying to cover over the marks of our circumcision, so to speak? Let's cease to do that. Let's cease to view something uh, as an enemy that's really uh, a friend and, and a blessing.